Uh, We're just so glad to have you here, whether you're from around the corner, from around the country. We're in a study of hope. Hope, not just wishful thinking, but something that is far more. And we get that study from a letter from one of Jesus' disciples by the name of Peter. And he wrote a couple of these, and, and we're studying the one known as First Peter. Now, when you get a letter from someone, a lot of times you're not going to put off reading it, but we're going at it over several weeks, so we're taking it in, in little bites. I don't know if you've ever been given like a really good love letter. Has anybody been given a, a really good one? I, 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 my wife has been given many great love letters. I'm an incredible poet. And... Um, and didn't know it, but um, she, uh, and, and her as well. And I can imagine getting a note or a card or something from her and, and just reading the first few lines and, and putting it down. But that's kind of what we're doing with Peter right now. And so I would challenge you sometime this week, maybe to go home, take about 10 minutes and just open your Bibles and just read the book of First Peter. And don't, don't stop and use any Bible study tools or any commentaries. Just go, just go straight through. And just treat it as, as a letter. Maybe even read it out loud as a family. But that's, that's how it would have been received to the people in the first century. They received this letter of hope. And as we study this book, you know, there are moments where, because it's an entire letter, that, that Peter has, has written things that he'll refer back to, or he's written things that he's building on. And some of those we touched on a couple weeks ago. And I want to go back just a little bit if I can. First Peter chapter 2, verse 6, because this is a very important principle that he's building on today in the part of the letter that we're going to be looking at. So First Peter 2, verse 6 says this, For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Peter says it stands in scripture, and it does, twice in the book of Isaiah, once in an Old Testament psalm, once in the book of Zechariah. The apostle Paul mentions it in one of his letters, and Peter also mentions it in a sermon that he gives that's recorded in Acts chapter 4, and that is this important truth. Jesus is the cornerstone of the salvation of God and of the, and of the living faith. Jesus is the cornerstone, and we are built on that. We are living stones building the church of God, not just the church in, in this place, but the church in our community, in our country, in our world. And it's interesting that Peter would emphasize this because in Matthew chapter 16, while Jesus and his disciples are in a town known as Caesarea Philippi, that Jesus looked at Peter and he said to him, Peter... Petra, his Greek name, he said, upon you, I am going to build my church. Upon you, Peter, you're a rock. And upon you, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So everyone know that Peter has this Jesus given nickname. And Peter says, listen, I know you people know I'm the rock. I mean, let's just be real about this. I'm the rock. But Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation that is laid and then we build upon. In the 1800s, a, a young man named Edward was raised in London by a couple of, of pub keepers. They, they, they owned the local bar. And Edward loved his parents, but he had to explain later in life that they were pretty neglectful, as you might imagine, because not only did they own the bar, but they enjoyed it often and all the time. And so there were many times where he was just off to kind of raise himself, and he would spend his Sundays with friends playing in the community and, and playing on the streets. And One time when he was playing on the streets in in London, he was invited to come to church as a teenager. And as a teenager, he went to church and he he heard God's word preached and he's put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he was a cabinet maker by trade and for most of his adult life. And 
after coming to Christ, Edward just loved to read the Bible. And, and he, he had this thought and this understanding of what it meant that Jesus was a cornerstone, a rock. And he had this flowing through his mind one day while he's walking to work to his cabinet shop. And, and he, was a ca- he, he, he began to capture a chorus in his mind. He wrote several songs, but he, he got this chorus in his mind walking to work. And he, as soon as he got to his cabinet shop, he decided to write it down. And he ended up writing over the, over the course of the day four verses that went with it. But the chorus that he wrote goes like this. He says, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. He gave the the name of the song. He called it the immutable basis of a sinner's hope. The word immutable, of course, means unchanging. We would title it this way, even though we know it by another title today. The author called it the unchanging basis of a sinner's hope hope on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The unchanging basis of a sinner's hope and the very foundation of our lives is Jesus, no more and no less. He is a living hope for which we are living stones and we have defined hope, not as wishful thinking, but as a strong, confident expectation in God's future faithfulness and presence. And in keeping with the thoughts that we're building on Jesus, we're building a home, and Jesus is the foundation in the world, and we're not of the world. Peter also, earlier in this chapter, in this portion of the letter, he has called us something else. He has said, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Hey, that sounds kind of weird. He calls us beloved like he likes us, and then he starts calling us names. No, that's not exactly what he's doing. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul, wage war against your soul. Peter says, listen, you're not of this world. There will always be a growing list of things that become socially and morally acceptable. But as a follower of Jesus, you are chosen and precious and holy. That is, you've been set apart by God. And just because the world around us has lowered its standards of morality and behavior, that doesn't let Christ followers off the hook. God's word remains the same. Rather, as the society goes into moral decline, it should remind us even more that we are aliens and strangers. We are residents of an eternal kingdom. And that kingdom, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, has already begun in your heart. And the purpose of your earthly relationships where you work and play, is to call people out of the darkness of this earthly kingdom and into the light of an eternal kingdom that is ruled by Jesus Christ. So it is from that foundation and from those two points that Peter has already made in this letter that we go to verse 13. He says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So from verses 13 to 18, Peter writes to people in persecution all around the Roman Empire during this time about living under authority in a world that was feeling like it was vastly unfair to followers of the way. He begins and ends this section on verses 13 to 18 with a, with a phrase and, and he begins it and closes it with the words, honor the emperor. 
He talks about the, the Roman governors and he says, you know, they're sent to enforce laws and they're sent to punish people who, who break the laws. But as it applies to our society today, Peter says, let me just say that this goes all the way to the very top of the Roman Empire. I want you to honor the emperor. So as we are reading this letter today as a church, as the body of Jesus Christ in our community, in our country, we look at our highest authority and the words that Peter would give us would be honor your president. Now, based on our last election results in Georgia, about 70% of the room just started squirming because within a 20 mile radius of us this morning, Six to seven of you voted for someone other than President Obama in the last election. And in our country, the parties have long gone away from being political collaborators for the common good. It was in George Washington's farewell address that he lamented if our country would be divided by two parties, that people would just align themselves by parties. It was one of Washington's greatest fears for our country. And yet 238 years since the start, we see that it's coming true. All decisions are made, all news is broadcast seemingly on on competitive partisan lines. And when you are not collaborators, but competitors, and, and when your side loses the election, everything that the other party does is massively unfair, massively unjust. Conspiracies abound. Taxes are too high, healthcare is too expensive, and regulations are too expansive. Now, just to be fair and balanced, there's about 40% of the room who may have voted for our president in the last election. So if you voted against a Republican contender, if you voted against Bush, if you voted against Romney, and, and you are also a partisan competitor, then you may have felt that a tax break for someone else, or implementing broad brush educational standards for states to enforce, or sending a friend or family member to war was massively unfair. So it goes both ways. Make no mistake on this Independence Day weekend. I believe we live in the greatest country still in the history of the world. Great. I mean, I gotta tell you, we're studying first Peter, okay? And there's no one on this staff, including Pastor Brian and myself, that are smart enough to plan a series that has this passage on Independence Day weekend, okay? So church, I wanna tell you, this is where God has brought us today. And these are his words. We live in a country with great ingenuity, overwhelming generosity. We're the most generous nation on the planet. We're the most vital vehicle of freedom the world has ever known. And I can promise you, I am not indifferent. I was raised in the church where the founding pastor was the founder of something called the moral majority in the late 70s. He basically single-handedly, he would say, and he's, he's in heaven today, he single-handedly was responsible for the election of President Reagan. It's kind of how, that's what I was raised with in my church. We did this. Okay, way to go, us. And staff members, literally, there were staff members who if you were found out to have voted Democrat, you were fired. My, one of my high school student pastors, not Brian, but one of my high school student pastors was fired for just such a reason. Now that is not what the scripture recommends. That is partisan 
competition that forgets some very important things. Listen, I have strong political opinions and I understand that elections have consequences, but can I tell you something from what the scripture has told us? From what the scripture is leading us to, we have to understand, see the whole letter. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. And I can tell you, Jesus is not red state or blue state. He is all states. In fact, he's got the whole world in his hands today. And as a follower of Jesus, we have to be careful not to let our political opinions about a temporary American kingdom get in the way of drawing people to an eternal heavenly kingdom. Now, when you understand the political climate that Peter wrote this letter in, I think it will absolutely amaze you. I think people around the world who received this letter, I believe there were jaw-dropping moments to this. This was an incredibly countercultural, even subversive truth right in the middle of this letter. I can tell you this much. Peter was not writing a partisan political statement in favor of the emperor. He was not writing in a genteel, favorable climate. He could not have been a fan of the Roman government at this time. Peter wrote this letter during the time of the Roman emperor Nero. Now we are in the, if you know your world history, and even if you don't, just go with me for a second. We are in the Claudian section of the Roman Empire. Rome has been in existence for about 300 years, began as a republic. And the Senate with balance of powers and, and all of those things. And then sometime right before Christ was born, there was a man named Julius Caesar who declared himself to be a Roman emperor, declared himself to be above the Senate and above its powers and to have greater power there. And when he died, the Romans said they saw a star ascend into heaven. So now Caesar was no longer an emperor. He was a deity. He was God, a God. And so when Caesar Augustus comes to power, the Caesar who was alive during the birth of Jesus Christ, Caesar declares himself logically to be the son of God. And they even had sayings, they would carry banners around and Roman soldiers would chant out and they would say, there is no other name under the heavens whereby men can be saved other than that of Caesar. So when you have a little band of people in Judea and Jerusalem who begin actually saying, no, they are worshiping the true son of God, they are following the true son of God and that there's no other name under heaven, they used a political statement to say there's no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved other than that of Jesus, I can guarantee you that all of Rome was in an uproar. And now here we are during the time that Peter has written this letter. We are five Caesars removed now from the time of Julius Caesar, or this emperor was the fifth. Perhaps you've heard of him. He's one of the most notorious throughout this age of history. Peter's writing during the Roman emperor Nero. And before his reign was over, it was very clear that the emperor Nero wanted to weaken his own country. He actually set parts of the capital city on fire. He allowed it to burn for nine days and then chose to rebuild it. He consistently and purposefully overstepped his authority and made decisions that flew in the face of the majority of the people and of the Senate at that time. In fact, he was slowly but surely dissolving the Senate. He was the emperor of the strongest empire of the world of that time and one of the strongest in history. 
and yet he openly wished for its ruin and for its demise until people decided they didn't like that. People decided they didn't like that Rome was burning. And so Nero developed a conspiracy theory. And his conspiracy went like this. I didn't burn the city. The people who burned the city are the people who call themselves the followers of the way. Now Jesus, in John 14, it's recorded, Jesus had called himself, among other things, he had called himself the way. And so early Christians called themselves the followers of the way. And so to make up for a city burning, Nero blamed it on these people and began what was the first Christian persecution as a way of covering his tracks. Now, Romans were very creative with the way they persecuted people and the way they tortured people. But Nero decided to go well beyond crucifixion and beheading, and he developed a lot of things himself. One of the things that he developed was to wrap a follower of the way in an animal skin and to send dogs after them until they were killed. Something else that he developed was to tie a follower of the way up to a tree and cover them with wax and and create a human candle until that person died. Many of the people who were recorded to be, especially those 70 closest followers of Jesus from the Gospels, many of those people were reported to be killed during his reign. Ultimately, the Apostle Paul and Peter himself are killed during the reign of this emperor. This is the emperor that Peter is referencing when he says, honor the emperor. This is the climate from which the movement of Christianity was springboarded. And it would not have happened had Christians sought merely to align themselves with the right political party or what they deemed to be the right political party. Instead, they preached Jesus and him crucified. Yes, it led to suffering, but it also led to the kingdom of God being expanded at a rate that no one has ever duplicated. And at the end of the day, that is what matters most. Peter says we are aliens in the world. We are to live the life of God. We are to be disentangled from the world system. We are to set our affections, the the apostles say, on things that are not on earth, but on things above. And Peter says we are to submit to God's authority in every area of our lives. And to do that, we have to recognize that anyone who comes into power on this earth has been placed here for God's greater purpose, whether we understand it or not. Since I was a kid, if there was someone who was elected that someone in my family or even someone in my church disagreed with, they kind of make themselves feel better about it by just saying, well, that person's a tool of Satan. Well, that's exactly the wrong thing according to scripture. Because whether or not that person knows Jesus as their personal savior, they are actually a tool in the hand of almighty God for his greater purpose. Though we may not understand it. Romans 13, the apostle Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Being a citizen of heaven does does not make us indifferent to authority here on earth. It does not make us indifferent to decisions that are made. You may not understand it. You may not have voted for it, but I can tell you, Christ follower today, no election result and no decision is outside the divine observation of God. But for some of you, this idea of coming under authority is much more personal. 
For some of you, this idea of dealing with unfairness and injustice is, is much more than, than watching CNN or Fox News, but it's something that you deal with every single day. In fact, some of you are going to deal with it as early as later today or, or tomorrow morning. You're dealing with someone at work. You're dealing with a boss or someone else that's treating you with unfairness in ways that you don't understand. Peter addresses that too. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, not only to the good boss, but also to the unjust. Some of you go to work every single day with a boss that's unfair, unjust. Not just unfair, but they're out to get you. And we're not gonna argue with you about that today. This is Peter addressing those of you who know that is true. Someone in authority is out to have you totally removed. Some of you even as as students deal with teachers who've treated you or work that you've done unfairly. It's not just unfair, but it seems to you and it's apparent that they are out to get you. Maybe for some of you, you've been dealt with unfairly by a bank or another institution that you're subject to. Maybe you're having to deal with unreasonable people and unfair treatment on a daily basis. We have, there's a couple of just natural tendencies, natural reactions to this. And, and one is to just to blame others, to blame others for everything that, that's not going our way instead of taking res- personal responsibility. Another thing is just to be passive and to have this kind of martyrdom syndrome where we just feel sorry for ourselves. The other thing that's, that seems the most natural for a lot of people is just to, to try to seek revenge. I have, I have two boys. They're 11 and eight. They got a sin nature from their mom's side of the family that I just, <laughs> I contributed somewhat. The, uh, and I can tell you that instantly, I see their, their gut reaction as they, as they just work out through life and, and try to deal with living together with, with, with another guy. And, and, and they love each other, but there are moments where something happens and the other one doesn't always practice forgiveness and it's okay, I love you. I'm not gonna let the root of bitterness in my, come in my heart. Rather, they love practicing revenge. And this is very apparent when dad does things like purchase water guns and water balloons for water wars out on the lawn. I mean, you can, you can watch as just... What starts out as fun just becomes anger boiling up to where how hard can I throw this at his face and see what happens for what he just did. It's natural inside of us. It's natural to blame. It's natural maybe to, to go inward, to be passive. It's, it's natural to seek revenge. But Peter's point is that Christians must stand in contrast even in the most unjust of situations. This includes a difference in attitude and a difference in focus. Listen, Peter understands that people getting his letter, a lot of them just wanted to fight. I mean, can you imagine being alive during this time? More than 60 million slaves just in the Roman Empire during this time. And Christians being blamed for some of what people saw as the worst atrocities in that society. And Peter says, listen, we've got to go beyond this. We've got to have a different attitude and a different focus I think Peter knew everyone wanted to fight because he uses a military word in verse 13. And the phrase when he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, he uses the Greek word hupotasso. It's the word that describes how soldiers in the Roman army were to line up in the command of a leader. And you may not always like the instructions of a commanding officer, but our attitude, Peter is saying, should be submissive and our focus should be towards God. And he says, the result of that is living in favor with the favor of God. Listen, for some of you, you are hardworking. 
You are diligent, you are honest, you do everything you can to take care of your family. You are prompt and working for a boss, but you keep running up against injustice and unfairness. Maybe you're working for someone that's just belligerent and stubborn and ungrateful. But God's word says that if you will patiently endure that situation, that you will find favor with God. Another word that could be easily swapped for the word favor in this passage is the word grace. So when you endure injustice, when you endure unfairness, with a godly attitude and a godly focus, you put grace on display. You put God himself on display. Peter goes on to say this, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I think that's Peter's political jab in this letter, by the way. I know they're stupid, but here's what we have to do anyway. I don't know if that's what he's saying or not. But he says, listen, this is the will of God. Here's how you put those who are unfair and unjust to silence, to muzzle them. He says this, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. How can you live out? How can you live this living hope in a climate of unfairness in your work or wherever you're encountering injustice today? The Bible says that if you disagree with someone's political opinion or authority, that you should run to Facebook as quickly as possible and be the first to voice the dissenting opinion for the sake of the kingdom of God, right? That's what Christ followers are doing all over the place. But rather, Peter says, listen, do good. Do good. Nothing silences a critic as quickly as an act of kindness. This is the will of God, that you demonstrate kindness, that you be known by your love, that you be known by what you are for rather than what you are against. Pastor Brian and I, back years ago, and Pastor Brian leading the charge in this, he, it seemed to us that not only in our own community, but throughout our country, that Christians were known more by what we were against than by what we are for. And it's for that reason we started the community makeover and we invited other churches and other pastors to be a part of it. And other pastors agreed. Yeah, we're preaching God's word and we should preach God's word and we have to preach on sin when God's word demands it. But here's the thing. We are known as Christ followers to though outside of the church, not for having the living hope that is Jesus died and resurrected, but we are known for what we are against. So let's show them what we're for. Let's show them love. Let's show them kindness. That's what community makeover is all about, to go out and to serve in this community and to serve in such a way that even the, the most aggressive and the loudest critics of the Christian faith and of the church have nothing to do but to stand back and be muzzled because they see the kindness of God on display. Something else that Peter says, he says, live as people who are free. Live as people who are free. I think about the pilgrims who, claim, who came over on the Mayflower to live in freedom. Look at what they intended to do with their freedom. The Mayflower Compact, they wrote this. For the advancement of the Christian faith, for the glory of God solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another. Why were they coming to a new world? Why were they coming to a new land? Not just escaping, not just trying to get away from unjust rule and unjust authority, but they were coming for something positive. They were coming for something they were for, not just something they were against, for the advancement of the Christian faith. That was their focus. For the glory of God and the presence 
of God and one another. They wanted to live free. And being free and living free are two different things. Every single one of us in this room are free today. We are free to worship our great God. We are free to tell others about him. We are free to proclaim Jesus and him crucified. Yet in this climate of freedom, the way of Jesus Christ finds itself losing ground day by day by day. As Christ followers, we should be living free. We should be living out the joy of our salvation. When we make Christianity just another system of of do's and don'ts, when we make it just another religion, to those on the outside looking in, it, it looks no different than choosing a political party. But a life lived in freedom goes way beyond that. A life lived in freedom does not put Jesus at the head of a party. It makes Jesus preeminent over all parties. That's what living in freedom should be about every day in the life of a Christ follower. Though I get concerned about a country that has lost its foundation of faith, there's no doubt about that. And I get concerned about Christians and people, in our, excuse me, I get concerned about people in our country not living under God, but more than that, I'm more, I get more concerned about Christians failing to live under God than I do everyone else. Think about the scenario that Peter is writing in. Think about if it happened today. Lay your political thoughts aside for just a moment and think about either party. Since I have been alive now, 38 years old, I was a bicentennial baby born in 1976. Patriot, I love my country, but there can be no doubt that over the last almost four decades, our, our country has moved further and further away from the principles that we're founded on. So think about if the scenario that happened in the first century were to happen today. A Republican president or a Democrat president, what if they were to decide to blame all of the atrocities we read about in the news, failings in different departments of government, challenges in the economy, whatever it is, more people not working today in the history of America than ever before. What if a national leader were to find a way to blame this on people inside of our churches? To blame this on people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, not just at this church, but at others. And what if the rest of the world went along with it? both conservative and liberal media outlets? And what if they decided to begin imprisoning Christians? What if they decided even more to begin to torture or to kill those who name the name of Jesus as their savior? What if it truly got massively unfair? What if there was massive injustice against the people of God. Peter says, honor the emperor. Do good and live out your freedom. You can be free and not live out your freedom.
you can be imprisoned and live it out for all it's worth. He says, live free. And he goes on to say in verse 21, for this is what you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Remember, Peter is writing about the societal structure and the same government is in place that had Jesus killed. The most unfair injustice in history, they trumped up charges, but because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, hope proved to be greater than any unfairness and any injustice. And that living hope is what we still have with us today. If the followers of Jesus had sought merely to align themselves politically, they would have been snuffed out. Can you imagine if the book of Acts were different? What if it were not people praying together? What if it were not people seeking God's word together? They would not have experienced miracles. What if the book of Acts was nothing more than a small band of people trying to make sure that they align themselves with the right political party for the sake of their own preservation and for the preservation of their little message? Rather, they didn't put their focus or their attention on that. Rather, they preached Jesus and him crucified. They devoted themselves to prayer. They studied God's word together. They met from house to house and they met in such a way that others wanted to be a part of it. They loved their enemies. They showed kindness. They lived free in one of the most politically oppressive and religiously oppressive eras of world history, filled with levels of immorality and justice in every form that the world has not yet come close to experiencing. Yet Jesus was the foundation and the movement that began continues to overtake the world and continues to overwhelm every problem in the world. We are more than conquerors today when we live out the living hope of Jesus Christ. The foundation of the Christian life is not built on politics, on your livelihood, on what you face on Monday morning. In those arenas, there will always be unfairness. Our foundation, our cornerstone, our focus is Jesus. Let it be Jesus, the solid rock on which we stand. What the songwriter called the unchanging basis of our hope. And no matter what happens in our society, I stand with the songwriter to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. No matter what, on Christ the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Do you know it? When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. 
All other ground is sinking sand. You know, my granddad was a minister of music, and so if you didn't know the first or the second verse, a lot of times you knew the last one. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Sing it with me. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Would you bow your head and pray with me? We declare today Jesus, the unchanging basis of our hope, solid rock on which we stand. No matter what comes against us, no matter what conspiracies abound, no matter how much ground our society loses to the way of faith and to the way of Jesus, he is still the solid rock. He is still the rock of foundation, of living faith. If you're here today and you've not put your faith and trust on our living hope, I wanna invite you to do that. You will find injustice and unfairness every part of this world, you will find it and every time you put your hope in anything other than him. But today, if you would pray and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you'll find your life on a solid rock. Pray in your own words, God, I put my faith and trust in your son, Jesus, today. I declare that he is living hope, that he has conquered death, that he has washed me clean of sin. And so, God, today I put my faith and trust in his death and his resurrection, and I fix my eyes on an eternal kingdom. If you pray and put your faith and trust in Christ today, would you let us know that? Use that Get Connected card you received as you were coming in and take it to our help center out in the atrium. We'd love to help you get started right. If you're here as a Christ follower today and been building your foundation on anything else, Allow God's word to lovingly encourage you today. Allow God's word to lovingly remind you what your foundation should be built on, the living hope of Jesus, and cultivate that freedom and that hope and that life. Some of you today, you may have put your your life on another foundation so much so that when other people look at you, they, they know your political party, they know your the things that you're screaming injustice about more than they know the living hope that's inside of you. Would you ask God to just course correct that today so that you put him first and preeminent in every area of your life? Father God, I bring your people to you today, bring my life to you today. Lord, you know in the study of this passage, it's very hard for me as well to look sometimes inside at my own attitude, my own focus. God, I thank you for my own reminder that Jesus is the foundation, the solid rock, our unchanging hope. God, I pray that that reminder and that encouragement would flow through every family in this room, through every person in this room. And may we put your grace on display in our community, our country, and our world, everywhere we work and play. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name.